the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Happy New Year, Justin. Yeah, Happy New Year, Lindsay. It, it was really hard to pick what movie we were going to do to kick off 2022. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> at first I was like, should we do some sort of sci-fi futuristic movie? Um, but the last two years have not been very hopeful. So we decided to you know, pick a movie that had some sort of hope, even though there's some very bleak moments to this movie, uh, 1990s Ghost in... I was thinking about it and I thought it was kind of crazy that we hadn't done a Swayze movie as like our main feature. I think I did a a Swayze pick of the week once, but we had never done a full blown where we're talking about Swayze. I think we kicked around the idea of like doing point break when then it just. Yeah. I don't think that's ever fallen off the table. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't seen this movie in quite some time and I was hesitant at first about doing it. You were. You were like, what, um, Lindsay, why are you even bringing this up? But like, then, uh, you know, right right when I started watching it, I already immediately liked it more than I did when it came out because I was much younger, and I don't think some of the adult themes and the questioning, you know, life and death and what love means, I don't really think that hit me very hard as, like, a 12-year-old. Yeah, there's definitely a stark difference. For me, too, Rewatching this movie, it felt so familiar and just as fresh as it did when I was a kid. I think even for being an adult movie, I got sucked into this movie then when I was eight. But now, man, it affects me on a whole other level. And we're going to get into talking about the themes, how this is a giant genre blender. Also, where this story came about. Favorite aspects you might remember will definitely hit upon why that love scene is just so special and memorable. Probably one of the most parodied things in all of uh, pop culture. We'll of course get into the reception. We're going to spend a hefty amount of time talking about the cast, how each player got involved, and really how the cast is one of the main reasons that this movie worked as well as it did. Yeah, I totally agree. These characters and the story, seemingly ridiculous, comes to life because of the uh, actors that are involved that are really selling it and, and keeping us in this universe. But uh, outside of Ghost, we have our picks of the week um, Lindsay, refresh my memory. What was your pick this week? <laughs> um, I did a movie that shares the same musical composer as Ghost, and that movie is The Year of Living Dangerously from 1982. Oh, that's right. That's right. I still have yet to see that movie. You uh, found the movie that I haven't seen. Damn <laughs> it, you. It happens maybe one every 50 episodes we do. It's crazy. Well, Justin, what's your pick? I know that you were kind of going back and forth on some choices. What what did you end up on? I always like for sure know what I have and I tell you and then it's like the day of I'm like, oh yeah, by the way. <laughs> um, and that and that's what happened with this one. I had all these different, I was going via actor, but I ultimately settled on uh, uh, connecting it via writer, Bruce Joel Rubin, who wrote Ghost. Uh, before Ghost, he wrote a, a really ridiculous movie called Deadly Friend, which was the movie Wes Craven directed uh, coming right out of Nightmare on Elm Street. And man, it is a, it's just what a, what a wild ride that movie is. I need to see this. Yeah. And of course, we'll round things out with a Murray moment. But going back to that universe of Ghost, Lindsay, can you just give us a brief 
summary, your interpretation of what this movie's about before we go to a clip. Well, Molly and Sam have a love for the ages, but in this unique supernatural romantic thriller, we only glimpse their deep love connection for a short while before Sam's murdered during a mugging and left to die in Molly's arms. How bleak. But this is only where the story begins. Sam's non-corporeal spirit remains visible to us as he follows the grieving Molly, and while with her, the man who murdered him breaks into their home and starts curiously looking around for something very specific in the house. Now he's concerned for Molly's safety, but unable to communicate with her, Sam seeks out a medium in Otome Brown, a scam artist of the spirit world whose true psychic ability kicks in as soon as Sam comes into her life. Reluctant but willing, Sam enlists Otome to help him warn Molly and uncover the scandalous, too-close-to-home truth behind his own murder. There's so much more going on in this movie than meets the eye. Yeah. This is a lot of details. Yeah. Thank you for that. Of course. Well, let's go to a clip from Ghost. We'll be back. We'll talk about it. I need you to tell Molly what I'm saying, but you have to tell her word for word, all right? Word for word. Yes. He wants me to tell you what he's saying word for word. Molly, you're in danger. Now, you can't just blurt it out like that and quit moving around, will you, because you start to make me dizzy. I'll just tell her in my own way. Molly, you in danger, girl. What are you talking about? I know the man who killed me. He knows the man who killed him. His name is Willie Lopez, and I know where he lives. His name is Willie Lopez. He's Puerto Rican. He knows where he lives. Write it down. He wants you to write it down. You write it down. I ain't no damn secretary. Just, just do it. So the script to Ghost was floating around Hollywood for a minute. Um, it wasn't really a uh, movie that um, studios were super interested in right off the bat. And I can kind of understand. I mean, you, when you look at it in the time frame of the 80s, you know, most ghost movies that had come out were horror movies or like, you know, had a horror comedy. Um, this idea of the movie being from the ghost perspective wasn't totally original. I mean, it was pretty original, but uh, Spielberg had done a film in 1989 called Always, which uh, to me is kind of like a really bland version of Ghost. And that movie um, wasn't a bomb by any means, but it, it you know, it was a Spielberg movie. And at that time, just having Spielberg's name on something should have meant big box office receipts. And so that movie not really um, catching on. I can kind of see why studios would have said, I don't know. I don't know about a movie about a guy who's like bummed out because, you know, he got killed and he's like trying to track down his killer and his wife's like upset the whole time. But there's a lot of elements going on in Ghost that I think um, make it uh, ten times the movie that always was. And also, um, again, adding in the humor that Whoopi Goldberg brings to to this movie uh, during the second act. And the writer, Bruce Joel Rubin, said he was inspired after watching Hamlet and hearing Hamlet's father, who's a ghost in the story, say, Revenge my death. And he thought, well, that's a concept, right? I guess it's not really a revenge tale, but in a way it kind of is. Yeah especially, um, and we'll get into a casting with the character of Carl, but like, you know, we do get this like very sinister villain pretty early on, you know, was involved in the murder of Patrick Swayze's character. And so that idea of a ghost that is trying to get some type of retribution for what happened to them was really the inspiration behind this. And Ruben is somebody who believes in a world where ghosts exist and has been known to be a writer who 
writes emotional stories. And a guy, after seeing numerous interviews now, seems like he has a certain peace and tranquility like in his heart. So it's really no surprise that a movie like Ghost would come out that's a little bit deeper, has a total edge to it that you're kind of not expecting. But like Justin said, Hollywood wasn't exactly clamoring for a story about a dead guy. Ruben did manage to sell Ghost to Paramount, um, but it did sit around for a little while without having a director immediately gravitating towards it. And what's interesting to me is what got interesting Ghost was uh, Ruben's other script that was kind of like a hot property in Hollywood, Jacob's Ladder, which uh, to me, I mean, I love Jacob's Ladder, but I feel like that's a movie where a studio would read and be like, yeah, I don't even know. The, like, is I don't this know what's fil- going is this on. Filmable? How is anybody going to relate to this movie? Yeah. Um, and it's also like oh more God. bleak than Ghost could possibly be. Yes. And Ghost wasn't a movie that I like just, there's a lot of movies even before this podcast. I just, you know, you Wikipedia or you're just, you know, you're following information on Ghost was never a movie that I really ever looked up. And so it was like right away when we started our first initial like few days of research, is like very first thing. What Jerry Zucker directed this movie, and like it was a it was a big thing. I mean, he was a one hundred percent comedy writer, a comedy director. Like did Airplane, did Naked Gun. This just seems so wildly out of his uh, Kentucky wheelhouse. Fried movie. Yeah, really. Yeah. I the mean, guy who was part of Kentucky Fried movie. It just ghost. you know, and and the fact that he was uh, looking for a new project, and what I've chosen is Ghost. Um, but wasn't surprising is that Ruben, uh, as soon as he heard the name Jerry Zucker, you know, because apparently he was like really excited to find out when they finally had a director attached that the studio was excited about. And he was like, oh, man, who is it? Is it Scorsese? You know, like Spielberg. And they're like, uh, Jerry Zucker, airplane guy. And he was like, oh, God. And as Ruben says, it actually made him cry thinking about that. Thinking about this comedy director is just going to take a big fart all over his emotional drama, you know, and I can understand this is your baby. You would be completely worried about that. It was also funny to me to learn at the time the VP of Paramount said to Jerry Zucker when Jerry Zucker's like, what do you got? You got anything on the burner? You got any script laying around? And in 1990, I mean, if you just look at the movies that came out in 1990, it's ridiculous how many great ones came out that year. But for Ghost to be the only one at Paramount, she's like, yeah, the only one that we got that's really worth anything is this movie called Ghost. Just, it's nuts to me. And while this sounded like a good project for Zucker to get involved with, he wasn't really on it just yet. I think his wife even read it before he did. She read it and said, you really need to jump on this movie. This is really something special. So Ruben gets in contact with Zucker, and of course they meet up to talk about the movie. And immediately Zucker starts giving him a bunch of notes and starts kind of not being negative about the writing or the story, but really starts just tearing it apart and saying where things need to be fleshed out or bulked up, just that there needs to be some more cohesiveness and depth in certain areas. And keep in mind, Ruben has been told the entire time that this script is wonderful, one of the best things that Hollywood's ever seen. And so to have the director of the movie that you've written, your baby, be completely destroying it must have really felt like um, a punch to the gut. So after feeling a little irritated, Ruben's like, let's go out to dinner. Let's talk about everything except Ghost and let's reconnect kind of as humans and make sure that we can work together. Evidently, that dinner kind of changed everything. They really got on super well after that and ended up 
doing 19 drafts of this script, which spanned around like six or eight months and didn't necessarily do a bunch of rewrites, but added in a lot more things. Zucker helped with the overall structure of the film, not writing, but together they made it much more enjoyable and denser version, uh, which is what we see. Just it felt like a true collaboration between two people. We've covered a ton of movies on this podcast where some, their script is written and then it gets sold and that writer's like, oh, the movie that I wrote five years ago has now been changed five times and it's now this movie with a different title and characters that I don't remember, but I'm getting credited as one of the writers. But this was a movie that this script had a lot of support from the studio and once a director was attached, Ruben was, you know, there was Zucker, like this collaborative process. And I think that that the movie benefits from that, especially um, with Zucker having a comedy background, because I do think that the comedy in Ghost really weighs out the bleakness of the situations and what uh, the Demi Moore character is like going through, which is pretty gutting. And the Whoopi Goldberg stuff, and granted, I think Whoopi Goldberg could have probably taken a lesser script and and kind of done, you know, punched it up a little bit with her humor style, because that's evident in the movie. It's like, that's Whoopi Goldberg's style. The comedy really is the savior and making this movie not be a total bummer, because it could veer in that direction. But one brilliant thing about this film and how it blends comedy and to dealing with such heavy themes because it makes uncomfortable topics that we all go through it makes it easier to digest and when we're not just love you know we're talking about losing someone that you love the um, acceptance of of dying that that's going to be a reality or even that your life is going great and then something completely devastating comes along. These are all things that we can relate to. And when you think about sitting in a theater of a bunch of strangers watching a movie about these really heavy subjects that are coming up, not that they're not relatable, but you know, are you looking around at other people like, oh, I don't want to seem like I'm affected by this. Having someone like the Otome Brown character coming in, making these subjects easy to talk about and easy for us to experience really does just ground the movie and opens up a dialogue almost like while watching this that we're allowed to feel okay talking about these really heavy topics. And that's a great point too, because when I think of Ghost or like before I've really started watching it for this podcast, mm-hmm. I kind of thought of it as like a surface level movie, like, oh, it's this revenge tale and he's like loves his wife or whatever. But watching it more closely, yeah, like there are some strong themes here of like making you question things, you know, about faith and like spirituality and the afterlife and how strong love is, how strong of a bond two people can have and whether or not you believe in ghosts. And we'll we'll get to that at at some point here. It's not necessarily um, about that. You know, it's Mm -hmm. about a connection, a human connection and dealing with loss. Also loneliness because it's kind of a voyeuristic movie you know like Swayze's alone I mean he meets up with Oda May but there is that moment there is like this I would say like a good 20 minute section where you know he's kind of figuring stuff out and the movie's taking its time and I in a, in a good way in my opinion yeah. uh and really showing us that he's lost you know he can't communicate with anybody and he's doesn't understand what's going on but he does in a way because it's like oh this is what the afterlife is like. Even if you're in your 30s, 
you've you've spent at least I'm sure some time pondering, you know, uh, what's going to happen after we die. Um, if you are in your thirties and you haven't pondered it once yet, I think now is like a good time. Like after this podcast is over to do some seriously deep thinking about it. Um, <laughs> cause it's something that we're all going to face. And that's, that's what I'm really here to talk about. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> but, uh, this movie, I don't, I don't think of ghost as like, it's the thinking person's spiritual movie and the movie doesn't take a ton of time like i'm glad that the movie isn't about exploring that universe but i'm glad that we get enough of it that we get the gist and then we get sort of like oh okay there's enough and it kind of lets your imagination run a little bit of like well what would it be like for different characters or what would it be like for you if you had you know died young and we're trying to figure stuff out in this purgatory with all of these topics one thing that ghost doesn't do is force beliefs on you. It just asks you to question certain topics. And even with uh, thinking about like the afterlife and how this movie does go into that a little bit and how Patrick Swayze's Sam character doesn't have anyone to talk to. And he does encounter the subway ghost played by Vincent Schiavelli. And I remember thinking as a kid, that guy, like, he was angry, like, super violent angry, but he was, like, kind of funny to me as an eight-year-old. In watching that as an adult, you realize that, like, that character is, he can't accept his own death. That's why he can't leave a subway. That's why he's miserable. That's why he hates everything. And it just deepens the whole thing. And Sam seeing this guy and being like, cool, I can learn stuff from him. But at the same time, I don't want to be that guy. You know, I kind of told you off the mic. It's the one section of yeah. the movie that I, it's not my favorite. You know, it's I, I think uh, maybe because they I wished he would have like met up with a different character. But on another watch, the balance of that character is I'd forgotten on a second or third watch, you know, like in the beginning, there's the cute old man who's like oh, yeah. all happy. Yeah. You know, he's like walking around checking because he's like, no, you know, he's been waiting for his wife to die so he can be reunited with her. And I like that we, you know, and that's a brief little thing in the beginning, but all these different people, you know, we're not seeing a bunch of ghosts in this movie, but we're seeing a couple of different perspectives. Like we've got the angry ghost who's just like, he's stuck in like a, you know, he's spinning his wheels. He's stuck in this loop. But then another ghost who's like, ah, I've been waiting for my wife to die so I can be, you know, reunited with her. Who knows how long he's been waiting, but yeah. that he's like at the hospital looking at bodies, you know, trying to, you know, and he's just so cheerful um, when, right when. Patrick Swayze is like just finding out that he's dead. Um, so I like this balance of the different ghosts just enough again in a script to give us what we need to better understand this universe, but not uh, take up like a half an hour of like, okay, we get it. He's in the afterlife. It's like just the right amount of story without being superficial and just like toss away that there is a reason for each, each time that we do explore these things. Enough to make me buy into it. Yeah. And overall, after reading a bunch of articles and seeing interviews, the production seemed like a very positive experience and that everybody had their heart in the right spot. I, I think I read a couple things where Demi Moore and Patrick Swayze had some disagreements with Jerry Zucker, but I don't think it was a bad blood situation. It was more just over creative differences. And Patrick Swayze in his day was, was not known to be uh, quiet or hold back on, on his opinions if he thought something needed to go a particular way. But it seemed like everybody had their 
heart in the right spot for all of this. And even Whoopi Goldberg said that it was a true pleasure to make this film. And it didn't really seem like a crock for any of these people to be saying that. I know that a lot of times you can hear, um, you know, we all just were one big happy family and you know that there's no way that they could have been. But this really seems like a legit positive experience. And the overall vibe of the film, that kind of comes through that those were the folks behind it. These are professional great actors, but if you're really getting along with somebody, that's going to only enhance your performance. And I think that is really evident here in this movie. And one particular scene with chemistry that I feel like it's just, we have to bring up. It's, it's, it's the, it's the, you said in the beginning, one of the most parodied scenes, the lovemaking scene with the pottery. Revisiting this movie, I was prepared mm-hmm. to like really roll your eyes at that scene. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was I was I was like getting I was prepared to get like snarky about it. I was it. wondering if you were going to and uh and I, I I will say I I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> Is Jerry Zucker like pulling off maybe like the best one of the best scenes that I thought was this throwaway like parody lovemaking scene and because maybe it's been parodied so much but now I'm past that you know we're so yeah. far past that and the song and everything is not playing on the radio all the time I was like man Jerry Zucker like kind of did the impossible and it's like really hard to pull off sex lovemaking scene that doesn't feel kind of false or like awkward and makes the characters you feel like there's a connection there because you have to you, you need to feel that before Patrick Swayze dies and I don't know, man, that scene started playing. I was like, doesn't feel porny, but doesn't feel hokey. And uh, I just came off of uh, watching um, Top Gun, which I don't know if you've seen that in a while, but the love scene, I'm sorry. I I love Tom. I I think Tom Cruise is a great actor. Kelly McGillis is wonderful. Not in lovemaking scenes. He's not. Man, the, the scene when you're watching, you're just like, God, I just wanted to just cut away. Like I wanted to see the end so badly. And, uh, this, maybe it's because they're both gay. Sorry. Maybe, yeah. But you know, but you know, th- this movie. I think, um, I think directors have had a hard time handling sex scenes in movies for like since the history of film. Anytime you've heard about lovemaking scenes in movies, especially ones that are notorious, it's always been about like, yeah, it was awkward, you know. And why wouldn't it be? Well, what's so wild about it is that there's no sex. There's they're not actually having. I mean, not that they're actually having sex anyway, but. There's no, it's all foreplay. It's all just making out and like touching each other. Because the point of us spending so much time with Sam and Molly is to see their connection, like you said. But to really feel that intimacy, it's not about like a like a sex scene. This is about intimacy and closeness. And we see that these two are like in their own world and it's it, you really do feel it on screen and to know that there was originally written a sex scene like the all of the the foreplay stuff was going to happen the dancing was going to happen but there was going to be a sex scene i mean they even looked at body doubles for Demi Moore like it was planned and then they start filming this and start filming these scenes and it's becoming very obvious that they don't need a sex scene. This is this is the lovemaking scene, you know? And I think to be in the middle of filming and realize this scene is incredibly powerful, we don't even need something, 
Like that must have been really cool to experience. And I mean, did they have Unchained Melody playing over the top of that? Probably right. not. Yeah, and I think that it's, you know, one of the few scenes where the music, the lyrics are kind of like telling you what's happening yeah. within these characters' lives that doesn't feel too Mickey Mousey. Like it it actually makes the scene even more, I think, uh charming and believable. We'll stop there. We'll go to another clip. Uh, when we get back, we'll talk about the chemistry of this cast and how they all came together to make this movie. Tell her you're here to fill out a signature card for a new account. Can I help you? Yes, I'm here to fill out a signature card for a new account. And do you know your account number? So to start us off talking about the cast, let's go with one of cinema history's worst scumbags ever on film, and that is Carl, uh, played wonderfully by Tony Goldwyn. Man, this guy. I mean, there's not one person that walks out of this movie not hating Carl, and you have to. You have to hate this scumbag. It is, and it's such a uh, meaty performance. Like, he goes Mm -hmm. for it all the way. Like, he goes full scumbag (laughs) and has, I mean, just his look and everything. And toward the end of the movie, right before he dies, when he's, like, kind of attacking Whoopi Goldberg and Demi Moore's character, you know, it's a little over the top. But because prior to that, he plays, you know, when he's, like, trying to, like, weirdly seduce Demi Moore's character and Patrick Swayze's there and he like pours the wine on his shirt. He's sort of like the Ellis and Die Hard. It's like, you're just not going to hmm. see that guy as another character for that third act. We've been building toward the Carl explosion and um, you're just like, God, I want to see this guy die. And I think that's why they give him such a violent death is because, you know, it's all about Swayze avenging his own death. And so seeing Carl like get like the worst of the worst deaths in this movie um, is a little bit gratifying, even though it is uh, wildly violent. Like, I didn't remember it being, yeah. like, that violent. And the fact that uh, even Swayze, who's, like, in the afterlife now, and he's seen all this crazy shit for, like, two hours, he has to turn away. He's like, oh, my God, that's, like, absolutely disgusting and gross. And Tony Goldwyn also has many physical shining moments in this movie, too, because he's constantly caked in anxiety sweat 
because he's a scumbag. He knows he is. And I mean, he set up this mugging of Sam. I don't think with the intention of killing him. I think he was just supposed to get mugged and get the information he needed for this scam he's running at the bank. And, you know, all went bad. Anyway, you're still responsible for his death. In saying that, though, I think it is funny to note that kind of the reason that we hate Carl so much is not because he's responsible for Sam's death. It's that he's putting the moves on Molly. And I mean, you hate him for both reasons, but that really kicks in when the whole shirt with the coffee thing and you're like, oh, I see you. I see you, Carl, what you're doing. I mean, I'm not trying to speak for all audiences on which whether it's death or taking, you know, your former best friend who you had killed's girlfriend if you're trying to pick her up nah, i don't know which is worse making the moves is totally worse because it's <laughs> like and maybe only because it's like compounded by the fact that like the information that we already know it's like you know you, you accidentally had him killed and now you're like putting the moves on his like recently widowed girlfriend it's like yeah that's what kind of boils the blood the most i think <laughs> and tony golden sells it he does he does and his counterpart in that scene is, of course, Demi Moore playing Molly. And for me, Molly represents the audience. She's the person who kind of has to amend her beliefs or question her beliefs. Um, is, is she going to believe Otome that Sam's really talking to her from the dead? In a lot of ways, a character like Molly could be one dimensional and she just exists for one particular reason. But the way that Demi sells it, and I buy the strength that she gives through her grief all throughout the movie. And I think she was actually the first one who signed on in the cast. And both uh, Bruce Rubin and Jerry Zucker kind of had her in mind from the beginning. The first time I rewatched this, I was feeling a little bit of like the one dimensional aspect Mm -hmm. of like, if this character was played differently, um, it also made me question, like, in the script, is it just, did, was she reading it and she's just like, I'm crying in every single scene? Or if that's... <laughs> she's so but, good at crying, well, that's, though. But that's the thing, though, is, like, the first time I wa- rewatched, I was like, man, she's crying in, like, every scene. But then the more I watched it, I was like, I don't know that anyone has cried better on screen. Some of it's, like, the way that they shoot it and the soft glow on her face while she's crying. And apparently she can, like control which eye the tears come out first i mean that's just insane demi you crazy girl if you can do that but i think if there was more time spent on this movie before swayze died the character would feel more one-dimensional to me but because it's just someone dealing with grief and that's not one dimension it's like you're you're dealing with an emotion which she handles like appropriately through this movie and also to the scene where Whoopi goldberg's otome is trying to convince Demi Moore that she's talking to her dead lover thinking of that scene is like a tough it's a tough sell to make that happen and I really do believe it and I really do believe the frustration that all the characters are going through is like is she messing with me you know we find out other information about Whoopi Goldberg's character and the Demi Moore character that character that we are pulling for that we commiserate with on the loss of her loved one and that, you know, we want to see them reunited, even if it means some sort of like fantastical ending where, you know, they might actually be able to have one last moment together. And speaking of these fantastical moments that happen between our two lovers in this movie, I got to throw this in. Learning that the scene in which Sam body jumps into Otome and he can 
for a second speak through her if he wants to or share a moment with Molly and they kiss. I mean, it's a wonderful moment. Unchained Melody comes back in. The waterworks start. It's so beautiful. But one criticism that I've heard of this, and I and I think it every time I watch it, is that throughout the film, whenever there's been a body jump of a spirit going into Otome's body, it is Otome interacting with that person so in the scene where sam and molly kiss it technically should have been otome and molly kissing and as it was scripted it was supposed to be it was originally scripted as that and they had a moment of intimacy and when i heard about this bruce rubin was saying that when he was originally shopping the script around the fact that there was this little lesbian moment on screen had producers being like, oh yeah, we totally want to do this movie because of that scene alone, which unfortunately I completely believe. And then when it came up to Jerry Zucker, Zucker's like, there's no way in fresh hell we are doing that scene. And unfortunately, he's completely right. In 1990, you couldn't have done that scene at all without getting laughter, which was Jerry Zucker's number one fear of this movie is that it was going to be laughed at because he's a comedy director. But there's no part of me that doesn't think that that should have happened. I wish that it would. And how would that scene play 30 years later if it's Whoopi Goldberg and Demi Moore kissing? In 1990, it wouldn't have worked. I think it would actually be praised for doing that now and, you know, in 2022. But, you know, just kind of interesting to think about the next time you're watching this, know that that wasn't the original intention and it was taken out because audiences are immature sometimes. And I can I can believe a 1990s audience would have been taken out of the movie. Like totally. the mindset of a 1990s audience, everybody would have just been like, not everybody, but I think a large majority of ghost lovers would have been like, what? You know. I'm sorry, this is a lesbians and it is a black and a white woman. Mm, this is really pushing my believability. Yeah. I was believing ghosts. No, I can't right. believe this. It makes you wish uh, 1990 was further away than it actually <laughs> is in reality. It's kind of sad. Yeah, it's pretty sad. But that wasn't the only uh, big change in the script uh, concerning Whoopi Goldberg. There's actually quite a few changes um, that were made before Whoopi Goldberg became the character of Otome. How Whoopi got into this movie is fascinating. We'll get there in a second. But with the character of Otome, I believe that she was originally written to be a man and also a real psychic instead of a scam artist. And it was when Ruben was pitching the script that some producers who didn't pick up the, the film said, you know, it would make her character kind of even better if she weren't a real psychic. Or I mean, she is a real psychic, but she just doesn't harness her powers. I like that aspect of her character, so I'm kind of glad that it transitioned into that. But probably the biggest thing that I heard was in the film's climax when Carl has a gun to her head and it's like getting pretty scary, that Otome was supposed to die and that there were other cronies of Carl's that were there too and some of those guys got killed. Well, Otome evidently was supposed to like body jump into one of those people and then she starts killing other people around which I don't want to imagine that movie but I also thought that is wild to think about that being the end of this like emotionally gripping movie to just have like I don't know a possessed like actual dead person now like it just seems that that would have been like the movie if they did it mid 80s with Whoopi Goldberg Whoopi would have been like okay this is too far I'm yeah. not doing it but 
God, what a horrible version of a so movie terrible. that would be. I'm so happy that they really uh, kind of reeled it in there. Yeah, for, I thought yeah. we got a little out of hand. But Whoopi Goldberg, it's kind of wild because she's had like such a varied career. But I think of her most for Ghost and Sister Act. She won the Academy Award for Ghost, and rightly so. And I think the movie, when Whoopi Goldberg comes on screen, lightens up the movie. And I don't just mean like tonally. It feels a little more exhilarating. It's just like you're finally happy that like Patrick Swayze's character can communicate with somebody. Sam can communicate with Oda May. And then we have this pretty good like 15 minutes I think of comedy here where he's annoying her she doesn't want to be a part of this thing you know she absolutely is like annoyed that she has this power that she's been doing you know these scams but it turns out she really does possess the the talent to channel someone who's not living and there's a lot of good humor elements here but there's also I think it's the bond that that brings uh sam and demi moore's character together in all those scenes where Odame's translating sam's thoughts and feelings to demi moore those are some of the stronger scenes and i think in lesser hands there would have been a hard hard switch from comedy to drama there and Whoopi goldberg is one of those comedians that i think has the ability to play it straight but like it seems real there's some comics that i just feel like They're in movies where they're there for the jokes, right? But then when there's not jokes and they have to just be the guy who's like eating breakfast and saying what he's going to do for the day, like it comes out really flat. She's able to take those scenes, make them believable, but then hit you with a bunch of jokes after, you know, you get through these segments of of story, especially in comedies where sometimes the story's thin. We're waiting for the the punchlines. And in Ghost, I think it's the setup for Sister Act. I think it's the, this is fully formed Whoopi Goldberg's comedic style mixed with like a good script and like a stronger character. And then Sister Act is what you should have gotten in the 80s, not like these sort of like, you know, weaker scripts that didn't have a fully fleshed out character. I am absolutely right there with you. I thought about what this movie would be like without Whoopi Goldberg and her specifically playing that role, I wouldn't want to even chance it. I just think that she's so perfect for this role, which when you look at this and you think, ah, no one else could play this part. I can't imagine anyone else. To know that both Bruce Rubin and Jerry Zucker purposefully said from the onset, we don't want Whoopi Goldberg because they were concerned about her comedy roots and only being seen for being a comedian. There's part of me that doesn't buy that because she did do the color purple and very well obviously the woman had proved herself that she was more than a stand-up comedian so Whoopi's told this story a couple times that she kept hearing about this movie that every black woman was auditioning for she said you know people are coming back from the grave to audition for this movie just everybody so she called her agent and said why haven't I heard about this what's going on with this movie can I audition for it And her agent said, actually, they don't want you, which seems pretty weird and insulting, but okay, whatever, moving on. She was filming a movie somewhere else anyway. So some time goes by, Patrick Swayze's cast, and they're still trying to find the perfect Otome. Patrick Swayze thinks, what about Whoopi Goldberg? And Zucker and Ruben are like, nah, we don't want her. She's, you know, too well known for her comedy. And Swayze responds with, well, 
I'm not going to do the movie if we don't at least ask her if she's interested or at least audition her just to see. So as this movie was very contingent upon Patrick Swayze's involvement, there were every main lead actor in the 80s and 90s had turned down this script and like Patrick Swayze, he was going to be this movie. It had to be him. So they went and met with Whoopi Goldberg and I guess it wasn't like a perfect audition, but when she nailed it, she nailed it. And Swayze and Whoopi had a chemistry going on that they both really felt and believed in. And Swayze was just like, all right, I feel good about this. Do you want to do this? And Whoopi's like, hell yeah, I want to do it. Yeah, and I think that it's it was the perfect choice. The only uh, casting uh, choice that I found out about that I thought was pretty wild and kind of made me think a minute was uh, Tina Turner audition for the role. And I don't think Tina Turner has been in any movies other than Beyond Thunderdome, but she's so good in that. I don't necessarily think I would want to see Tina Turner as the Oda May character. I would plop down like $20 for like a special <laughs> edition Blu-ray with those Tina Turner like casting sessions. Yes. Oh, yeah, that would definitely be good. Well, Whoopi ended up feeling very supported by Zucker and Ruben in the end. Once they got the ball rolling, we're like, yeah, this is completely tailor-made for you. We didn't even realize it at the time. Now, if you've been following this podcast all along or you're new to listening to us, you've probably figured out at this point that uh, pretty much every movie that we've covered came out before 2000. And that's kind of like what we established early on with Ghost. Most of this movie, I think, really holds up in 2022. There is one very big discussion that has gone on over the last 20 years, and that's the magical minority character in movies of the past. And this is something that has been going on for years and years and years in Hollywood movies, where there's a minority who's subservient or wanting to please a white character. Sometimes they figuratively have a magical power, sometimes literally, uh, like movies like The Green Mile. The reason why I bring it up is because Ghost has kind of come up in that conversation with the Odame Brown character. And I can see it. I can understand why it's included in the conversation. At the same time, in at least from the articles and some of the videos I've seen, her character is is definitely helping out the Patrick Swayze white character, and he can't do it without her help. But she's not necessarily, I think, like pleased with him. She's not proud to be helping him out. Like she's actually starts off like kind of hating him and is annoyed by him and is only doing it because he's just like prodding her um, relentlessly. But I do understand how it looks in ways in terms of cinema history. And even looking at the Oscars, Whoopi Goldberg did win the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for Ghost, though she was only the second African-American actress to win that award, the first being Hattie McDaniel all the way back in 1940 for Gone with the Wind. Again, something to think about. I hadn't really known too much information about the magical minority character. It was something that came up in a couple articles I had read a few years ago. And then um, as we started talking more about this episode, it was like digging in further, deeper into that. Yeah, it's something that's worthy of, of noting. Certainly there have been much more negative portrayals of minorities in film. But when you notice a pattern like this in movies that you've seen forever you know like whether it's the shining to the matrix you know you see these things and you're like oh yeah huh that is a trend that's interesting to take note of um and maybe this is something that you've noticed forever it's just something that is worthy of having a conversation about and 
With Otome, though, I really do love this character. I don't think that this archetype or this trope existing, I don't think it necessarily tarnishes the character of Otome. I do think that her character is given a little bit more depth than other characters that are the magical minority figure. I think that Otome is given just as much depth as all of the other characters in the film. I think if the Otome character had died in the movie and she had like sacrificed her yeah. life to save yeah. Patrick Swayze's relationship or help him out in any way, that would have been th- bad. this would have been like, yeah. But yeah, I, I get what you're saying and you know, I agree. And of course the white guy we've been talking about this whole episode is none other than the great Patrick Swayze. And Swayze is a, a unique blend of actor for me. I honestly don't think that there's like a Swayze type character that's around now. Someone who's like equally uh, masculine as he is sensitive mm-hmm. and also has like a very athletic build, um, looks good with his shirt off, but at the same time doesn't have like looks like he worked with a trainer his whole life everything seems natural with him and then he also has like the ability to kind of get tough where you're like whoa dude you know (laughs) but then uh has a vulnerability to him too and and then on top of all that i think just being a really good actor and always has taken roles that i think uh people make fun of you know like poke fun at roadhouse and poke fun at point break and point i think poke fun at ghosts because they think these movies are are less than but Swayze makes these movies because he he plays the character straight I mean he puts everything into it he can take a ridiculous character on paper I think and like turn that character into something that's utterly watchable and entertaining and like someone that you want to root for or sympathize with and for him to be excited about a role that so many actors were turning down says to me that he's actually paying attention to the story. He sees what kind of a role this is, that it's something that's important and evokes emotion. And for a guy who's never really been afraid of showing his vulnerable side, it makes complete sense. But the role of Sam isn't exactly a cakewalk. A lot of people turn the role down because they felt like he just wasn't there. You know, he was he was a dead guy. There's nothing heroic in a dead guy. But yet in the same way that Sam goes on this journey throughout the film, I feel like Swayze is doing the same thing. And it was his vulnerability uh, that got him the role. Bruce Rubin said that he saw an interview with Barbara Walters wherein Swayze's dad was brought up and who had passed away and tears just started to come out of the man's eyes and just was able to be completely comfortable in who he was, show emotion. You see this macho, handsome, like man, you know, that you see all of these qualities that that you think this is what this is a well-rounded human being here. And everything that I've read about the guy um, kind of falls in line with the same thing. And he was really close to his dad and had like a pretty strict mom. Well, I did see in one of the behind the scene featurettes, uh, Patrick Swayze gets like pretty serious about, you know, this is like retrospectively thinking about the character in Ghost and said, you know, after he did the movie, he reevaluated his relationship with his wife. Like, how much time do we have left? And this is before, of course, you know, he found out that he was sick. Even hearing him talk about it in an interview, like so earnestly, that doesn't seem like something you hear people say in interviews too often anymore. Yeah. Like he gets pretty candid about it, about life and death and in relationships and kind of just that alone. It was like, man, 
I'm so glad he did this movie. He is that character. You know, you do believe that he, you know, really does love Molly and was willing to fight and, and see this whole thing through no matter how difficult it is that he's stuck in the afterlife and he doesn't know what the hell is going on, but he's going to make sure that she's safe before he finally leaves. And I think this is like a perfectly cast movie. I don't really, the other roles, I don't think I could see someone else in just about every big actor you could think of in Hollywood passed on Ghost. And I don't know. I think that's a good thing because I think uh, this is the movie that made Swayze kind of like, I mean, he was already kind of a household name, but this kind of, the success of this movie, like, showed another side of Swayze, and I love that he decided to, like, kind of follow it up with Point Break and say, you know, but I can also play this sort of action role, too, like this, like, stoner beach guy that's an adrenaline junkie. He wanted to mix it up. Yeah. Keep it lively. Yeah. And he also was Ruben's first pick for this role after seeing that Barbara Walters interview, but Jerry Zucker did a little bit of research and saw movies like Roadhouse and... We're like, over my dead body, is Patrick Swayze going to be in this movie? But ultimately was proven wrong, especially with Ruben thinking that this movie was going to be non-existent if Swayze didn't get it. Every other actor had turned it down. So Ruben calls Swayze's agent and says, please have him audition. Call Jerry Zucker, ask for an audition, like going behind Jerry's back to make this happen. So Swayze's agent calls Zucker, says, at least let him audition. I know you said you don't want him, but he really wants to read for the part. Please let him. And Zucker agrees, like, okay, I'm not going to tell this guy he can't audition. Sure, whatever. So then Swayze calls Ruben and asks him, what should I do? Is there any insight you can give me into landing this audition? And so Ruben tells him, what to wear, like how to look like as much Sam-like as he's envisioning. And Swayze shows up to the audition and they did a couple scenes, but the scene they settled on doing in full is the final scene in the movie with Sam, Molly, and Otome. And I mean, it's Niagara Falls the whole time. So many people are crying while watching that scene. And even in Swayze's audition, he got Ruben and Zucker and his agent all in tears. I mean, that's the magic of Patrick Swayze. And I really wouldn't want to see who are the other people like Tom Hanks, Harrison it's Ford, like Tom Cruise. That you can think of. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to see any of those guys in this role. Yeah. I want to see Patrick Swayze. Same here. And for being such a precise actor, a dancer, someone who is known to be on point, um, that was needed for the role of Sam with the limited amount of special effects that are in the movie. I mean, it's it's wild to think about how 30 years makes a difference. But with the scenes in which Sam is, before he figures out how to knock over objects or touch things, when he's like swinging punches or trying to interact with a human and just passes through them, or when someone walks through his body, those are special effects that were done with two or more shots of the exact same scene that had to be perfectly staged. And that's definitely on the part of the director of photography and, and Jerry Zucker. But for the actor to have that in mind, to be able to make those scenes possible. I think the hardest one they said to film was when Willie Lopez, the guy that killed Sam, is in their house and he's going up the stairs and Sam is trying to grab him and swing at him. Um, he's going upstairs and there Sam's trailing behind him and just thinking that those actors are not in the same room 
at the same time, but are interacting in in a way that's very quick and has to be precise or else you're going to lose all believability. And I just have to believe that Swayze being such a precise actor had to play a giant role in that. And the effects in this movie, uh, you know, they're they're dated looking for sure, but I think that they suit they still suit the movie well enough to where I think it works and the demons that that come oh, yeah. for the for the bad people that are kind of dragging them to hell. Um, that's still pretty creepy. And the, I think it was like the sound that they make, they said was a baby screaming in reverse, which that's just terrifying. Slowed down. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds awful. And they are terrifying. There've been more times than not that I see shadows and will flash back to those creepy times in ghost. And speaking of sound effects, we have to bring up the score to this film. Maurice Jarre's composition for this film is so emotionally manipulative in the best way. And I don't feel that it's a cheap hit. And, you know, you watch movies sometimes and maybe tears aren't going to automatically come, but you hear the right notes that happen on the score and it just, you can't help it. You just start crying. This one, the score is almost just reflecting what is happening in the movie. And I think that that emotional manipulation here is extremely warranted. Since we've been doing this podcast, I've noticed more and more how certain single scenes in movies, the score is like so instrumental in making the scene work. Mm -hmm. Um, Mostly I I found this out because a lot of times I'll have the movie on the background, but I'm taking notes. So I have the volume turned down on my TV, you know, and I've usually got some other video up or I've got IMDb up or whatever it is, you know, and for certain scenes in movies, they... You're watching, you're like man, the the expressions that the characters are making. It just <laughs> stuff looks goofy. In in Ghost, the particular scene where the score works, it's like there's just a lot of like Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore, and she's crying, and he's like smile crying, and like there no one's saying anything. It's like, <laughs> but it's just like this big emotional scene, and we're just seeing reaction shots. And again, like you said, very mo- emotionally manipulative, but um, warranted and you know effective. Yeah. And you couldn't talk about the music in this movie without bringing up Unchained Melody. We already have twice, but this was a hit for the Righteous Brothers. It was also a cover, um, but a hit for the Righteous Brothers in the 50s. But certainly since this movie came out, that song skyrocketed again and it had a whole second life. Yeah, this was a song that uh, I just heard like everywhere when this movie yeah. came out. Like it it just sort of uh, reestablished itself as a... Uh, like a, a classic, classic tune. I hear it now. I can just hear it and want to start crying. And I think of Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore. Yeah. Well, Ghost, though uh, studios were apprehensive about the script at first, Ghost was like a runaway smash success. I mean, we've talked about some hit movies on this podcast before. Ghost was made for about 20-something million dollars, um, which is, you know, Sizable yeah. budget, yeah. 1990, but made over $500 million, which is kind of insane. I think uh, I didn't realize how big of a movie it was when we started researching this. Back then, it was like they would report the number one movie for four <laughs> weeks straight. Like that would be, you know, they would recut a trailer around something like that, you know, and like saying it made all this money. But $500 million, I mean, that's like insane. And not only that, it be- it became like a huge like hit for 
Laserdisc and VHS sales. By the 90s, people were well into just, I want to own the movie. Like they would just buy it outright instead of renting it a lot of times. And yeah, just they were like printing money with this movie. And strangely, with the success of this movie, not a lot of ghost movies came out. Also, Jerry Zucker didn't make a movie for like five years. And like the movie that he made... Uh, 1995 was First Night with Sean Connery and Richard Gere, like a medieval movie. Strange. He rolls the dice, you know, does like a non-straightforward comedy movie, like gets out of like what everybody know him as, like has like a huge smash success and it's like, you know what, I'm not going to do anything for like five years, which in Hollywood at that time was probably like a decade. Anytime I hear the name Jerry Zucker, Ghost won't be the first movie that comes to mind. I'll just be like, it's the airplane guy. And those movies that he did, they're all brilliant in their own yeah, special ways. Yeah. But to think that this is your first movie that you're out making alone, not with co-directors, and it's Ghost, and it ends up being a blockbuster smash, I think I'd take a couple years off. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I didn't say this, uh, smash hit being, you look it up, there's some like huge movies that came out in 1990. Yeah. Number one. Number one most month. Made the most money, the most people saw it. It was the biggest success of 1990. I think it opened in July and was still in theaters by December. I can't even believe that. Yeah. And before we close it out, there's one more phenomenon that Ghost inspired, and that was to have women with short hair, if you can believe it. It was a revelation at the time for Demi Moore to cut her hair. And when she originally auditioned, she didn't have the short hair that she has in the movie. And she was cast, went on vacation, came back, had the short hair. Jerry Zucker was mortified and thought, I don't know what I'm going to do about this. This is not at all the vision I had. And they started doing just like principal photography. And once he started seeing that coming back, he's like, okay, no. Thanks to me, you look incredible. The hair is a dramatic change, but it completely works. But that sense of short hair on a woman that creates this idea of androgyny became a huge phenomenon. And maybe that seems wacky by, you know, 2022 standards, but was kind of a massive deal in 1990. Yeah, well, all the articles on it that I read, they kept referring to it as the boycott Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is kind of wild. Yeah. You know. It's like a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's stop there. We'll come back with some final thoughts on ghosts at the end of the episode, but let's get into our picks of the week. Lindsay, uh, I'm curious to learn about the year of living dangerously. One of your first uh, few picks of the week in a while that I haven't seen. <laughs> Well, I've always loved the idea of setting a fictionalized story inside a true event. There's a pre-existing structure, but it's up to the writer to add that spicy drama. The Year of Living Dangerously is an Australian-American political drama set in 1965, Jakarta, Indonesia. It focuses on a love affair which unexpectedly begins amidst the backdrop of a real-life attempted takeover of the government by an Indonesian Communist Party and conservative Muslim military. Our main character, Guy Hamilton, is played by a fresh-faced Mel Gibson. Guy is an Australian journalist sent on an assignment to get the up-close story on the political uprising in Jakarta. Every time that I say the city named Jakarta, it sounds so white and American because in the movie it's like Jakarta. It's like very pretty the way that it's said in the movie and I'm just like Jakarta over here. So bear with me. From moment one, the audience is thrown right into this world alongside Guy, who's a fish out of water. 
He's competent and ambitious, but without an inside assist, his reporting really isn't much more than a travel log. He's treated like a pariah for being a foreign journalist until he runs into the crafty and resourceful photographer Billy Kwan, played by Linda Hunt in a spot-on gender-swapping role. A certain generation of you might know her best uh, as the principal from Kindergarten Cop. Kwan is the complex heart of the film, often serving as our narrator and voice of the oppressed people in the film. Without Kwan's ability to gain inside knowledge, Hamilton would be completely drowning. Kwan is a guy with dwarfism and uses his physical stature to his advantage, meaning he knows he makes people uncomfortable, but no one can say no to him because of that. Therefore, he's able to get the scoops and interviews for Guy that are previously unavailable to mostly everyone else. Now, conversely, Guy treats Kwan as any other friend in the field. If anything, he's impressed by Kwan's boldness. Believing in their shared moral center and fervor for reporting the truth, Quan introduces Guy to his friend Jill Bryant, played by Sigourney Weaver, a British embassy diplomat who we later learn is an intelligence officer, which comes into play later complicating the story after she shares information with Guy about an impending coup. This movie had an extra boost as it was a pre-existing novel by C.J. Koch, and then further adapted for the screen by Koch, assisted by director Peter Weir and screenwriter David Williamson. Despite its superb performances, political intrigue, and an engrossing, sweaty romance between Gibson and Weaver amidst a real-life event, this film still continues to fly under the radar. I never hear it brought up in discussions about Weaver or Gibson's careers. At the time, both actors received massive praise for their roles, and Weaver was smart in showing that she wasn't just Ripley and Alien. And at this point in Gibson's career, he was known much more in Australia, but mainly for Road Warrior and Peter Weir's 1981 film Gallipoli. This film is just a stunning depiction of how immensely talented both of these actors have always been. But Linda Hunt was highly recognized, having received an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress in 1984. Weir said he never would have thought to look for a woman to play this role. Quan is vaguely sexually ambiguous, but this is not a plot point whatsoever. You don't see a woman playing a man. You simply see an ambiguous-looking person. And as Quan admittedly plays on his dwarfism because he knows it makes people uncomfortable, the fact that he is somewhat genderless goes by the wayside. One more player in this story that I love is Kumar, played by Bimbal Rocco. He's Guy's driver, assistant, communist sympathizer, who tries to open up his boss's eyes to the real-life horrors he and his community face every day. There's a moment where he compares himself to Americans who have so much more than he, yet are doing far less in their lives, but still, he and his people are the ones who are pitied and looked down upon. It's really a sobering moment and continues to unveil the movie's true heart. The connection to Ghost is the musical composer, Maurice Jahar, and while his score is woven all throughout the film, the emotional power really hits me when Guy and Jill are caught in this torrential downpour and seek refuge in Guy's car, giggling like teenagers. It's this curious intensity, the feeling right before something exciting is about to happen, a breathtaking moment that follows their impossible-to-resist-yet-constantly-reluctant relationship throughout the rest of the picture. It's reckless and carefree, seemingly flowing atop this affair which feels deep for a relationship that's so new. It's the score which solidifies the feeling that's pulling you through this adventure. Shahar's curious sense with lightly peppered dissonance is a beautiful accompaniment to the film. In another rain-soaked scene, Jill walks to Guy's office drenched with the weight of knowing an impending violent civil war is at hand while also craving this potential love connection but tormented by having to leave the country soon. These plot elements assist the score in creating an ethereal feeling like you're lost in a moment that's all your own with the horrors of the outside world at bay. 
the year of living dangerously is a slow burn, but entirely engrossing. It's littered with controversy, love, betrayal, friendship, the horrors of real life, defiance and desperation, while trying to make a difference against a government who doesn't care if you exist, doing something instead of idly standing by. A picture which communicates power by how Peter Weir frames every shot. Fantastic performances, picturesque landscapes, and a movie of intrigue, substance, and story. If you get the chance, seek it out. And hey, this movie was banned until 2000 in Indonesia, so that's got to grab your attention too. Sounds like there's so much going on in this movie. There really is. It's one that you have to pay attention to, but you won't regret doing that. You just have to give yourself over to the story. So I shouldn't be jacking around on Facebook while I'm trying to watch it? Probably not. (laughs) All right, Justin, I would love to know about Deadly Friend. So one of the main reasons I picked Deadly Friend was that uh, I hadn't seen it in a really long time, probably since the 80s. And I had no idea that Bruce Joel Rubin wrote it. And it's a totally different kind of film compared to uh, Jacob's Ladder and Ghost. This one seems a lot more mean-spirited and not the movie that you would expect. After doing some digging, I came to find out that there was a much different movie that Wes Craven set out to direct when he was working with Bruce Joel Rubin. Craven had carved out a pretty decent career as a horror director, um, but he saw what John Carpenter did with Starman, where a carpenter had did a much more lighthearted and gentler film, and Wes Craven wanted to do something similar, and he thought this would be the perfect opportunity. He wasn't able to contribute to the writing process with Bruce Joel Rubin because he was knee-deep in directing episodes of The Twilight Zone, which had been rebooted in the 80s as a new television series. He really loved the script that Ruben wrote. It was a sci-fi thriller, a love story with a Frankenstein twist about a kid who, he's sort of a technical computer whiz. He's a high schooler, but he gets a scholarship to college um, as a computer engineer, and he's somehow managed to build this robot. Now, this is the 80s. Uh, the robot is very dated, sort of think somewhere between the robot and Rocky Four and Johnny Number 5 and Short Circuit. And by all means, I think that was what Craven intended. He wanted to do a fun movie like Short Circuit, something that uh, was a little bit of a thriller, but for the most part was uh, family friendly, um, something that he hadn't done before because um, he was starting to get pigeonholed as like a slash and gore director, which he didn't really appreciate. And he had tried most of his career to get out from underneath And the movie that they set out to make was this computer whiz genius creates this robot. He moves into a neighborhood. He starts up a relationship with his next door neighbor, played by young Christy Swanson, in one of her earliest roles. Things are going great, but we do uh, sense that there is a danger within her home. Her father is a drunk. He seems to abuse her. And eventually this kid and his mom know about it. They don't really step in to do anything until eventually the father accidentally kills Christy Swanson. Um, by shoving her down the stairs and she breaks her neck. Well, the kid gets the idea of like working on computer chips that go in a brain and somehow it's very silly, but he's like, no, I can operate. So he gets his other new friend to help him uh, take her body from the hospital. And he does basically this brain surgery on her and has her come back to life, but she's part robot. And from here, the intention of the movie was that it was going to be this sort of unique, strange love story between her being a robot and the difficulties of their relationship. That was the movie that uh, Craven directed. That was the movie that they shot. They did a test screening for this movie. The people in the test screening were fans of Wes Craven. He had built up a reputation at this point, and it really tested poorly. 
Warner Brothers immediately said, you know, this family-friendly PG movie that you made is not going to work. So they insisted that he really, really do what he set out not to do. And they made him write six additional scenes that were filled with violence and gore. Christy Swanson and the kid went from having this sort of teenage love story to her just going on this killing spree and she's going around killing all these people. This movie starts out pretty good and then gets kind of real choppy and weird and doesn't make a whole lot of sense toward the end. Well, that's because the studio totally strong-armed Craven and basically made him make the movie that he absolutely didn't want to make. The studio made him add so much gore and violence that uh, when the MPAA first saw it, they gave it an X rating, and he had to dial some of it back. The first original cut of this movie was a PG and was very much in the vein of like short circuit. I would love to see that movie in the like mid 2000s. There was a petition made to have that version restored so that fans could see it because there was, you know, a lot of information out there about this version existing. And there's been a, you know, Craven had done a lot of interviews talking about how much, you know, they made him change. And I was really excited. Uh, recently, Scream Factory put out uh, Blu-ray and usually they have all these extras and everything with their releases. Um, I'm never going to bad mouth the Scream Factory release cause, or Shout Factory because it's awesome that they're even like getting these old movies out of archives and like on physical media. But there was not a restoration of the original cut of this movie. Um, the cut that was on the Blu-ray was what was released theatrically. And by all means, this isn't a terrible movie. If you're a fan of Wes Craven, this is definitely not one of his better movies but there is something about it it's dated and bad but in the way that kind of makes it good and you can tell that the scenes that are violent it's like this quirky love story but then there's the the scenes that are just so ridiculously violent and you can tell that this you know the studio was just like no go over the top of the violence so those scenes um don't really seem like they fit well with the rest of the movie and and there was a reason for that this is one of those movies like i always pick usually for my picks of the week and it's something to uh throw on during like sunday afternoon or a uh, saturday night at midnight this is just sort of this ridiculous uh suspension of disbelief goofy teenage uh thriller somewhat sci-fi horror it is a lot of fun and if you like early christy swanson uh this is one of her more enjoyable roles and she does a pretty good job of playing a robot and I think she even uh, was trained by a like a professional mime to try to work out the the way a robot would move and walk and operate that's kind of cool I do have to give it to the 80s for empowering kids to believe that they can do anything it doesn't matter if it is something unbelievable by the middle of a movie like this I'm gonna believe that this kid can create a robot and perform a brain surgery so this is completely something that I would watch. And it's insane when you see this robot because it's like, by the looks of it, this thing looks like it probably would weigh like a thousand pounds. <laughs> you know, they have to like lug this thing around, like get it up into a van and all this stuff. It's ridiculous, but a lot of fun. Someone should also do a count on how many movies in the 80s kids stole bodies from hospitals or morgues because I feel like that happened a lot. Yeah, and... and <laughs> And I will say his uh, his his friend in the movie does seem pretty like freaked out by the fact that they're going to break into this hospital and take a body. So I do give the movie that there's like this realistic uh, conflict between him and his friend. His friend's like, I, I don't think this is a good idea at all. I don't think we should be doing this. I'm actually thinking about like not helping you. I'll also always watch something that Wes Craven's done and something like 
what the studio forced him to do, it's not surprising, but it also shows how adaptable the guy is, even if it's begrudgingly and he'll talk very open and honestly about it afterwards. He was always somebody to tell the truth. And even if he was forced to do something he didn't want to do. I'll always have love for Wes Craven. Yeah. Well, those are picks of the week, the year of living dangerously and deadly friend. Here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear. And when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're going to come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even show. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. That was fun. Every once in a while, a Murray moment presents itself which perfectly situates into our main feature. Patrick Swayze had some iconic roles in his life. Ghost, Dirty Dancing, or Point Break all topping the list. But if you're going for a cult following, the number one Swayze movie is going to be the 1989 brawler Roadhouse. In the solid standby crowd favorite, Swayze plays Dalton, a bouncer whose shoulders above in his wits, and though he might not look like a pro wrestler, this guy can really bust some heads if you're getting rowdy at the old watering hole, the double deuce. I wasn't allowed to watch Roadhouse growing up, but I don't think it was for all the skull cracking and ball busting. I think it was really because of the subplot, the steamy love affair which begins between Swayze's character and the local doctor, who also happens to be completely enchanting, Doc, played by the ever-talented Kelly Lynch. Now, Kelly happens to be a good friend of Billy's, and Kelly's husband, writer, director, producer Mitch Glazer, he and Billy's friendship dates all the way back to 1977 when they were introduced to each other by the legendary comic bruiser John Belushi. And the following story would have made Belushi even laugh. I've never seen anyone enjoy Roadhouse more than I do. Bill once said on Anthony Bourdain's show, Parts Unknown, Bill had never really seen Roadhouse all the way through, Kelly said on The Rich Eisen Show. He watched it one day years and years ago, and then it came to the love scene. Uh Uh-oh. Bill's watching a woman he's friends with, her husband who he's super close to, and this scene comes up, Bill's wheels start spinning. Basically, Kelly continued, what it was that upset him was that I was getting thrown up against what looks like a very painful rock wall. He thought it was hilarious, though. And here's Bill's confession on what he's done for over 30 years now. I call their home in the middle of the night and say, you don't know me but your wife's getting slammed up against a wall by Patrick Swayze, and she's not putting up much of a fight. And then he hangs up. His calls vary from how he informs Mitch about Kelly having sex with another man, and Kelly even says he tries to disguise his voice, sometimes even using the classic Carl Spackler honker voice. But it's pretty pointless because you can tell it's Bill Murray calling you. Kelly imitates Bill's prank phone call as, uh, hey, Patrick Swayze's doing something to your wife up against a rocky wall. You might want to turn on the TV. We thought it was a one-off, she said. It was pretty funny, but then one time, Bill was in Russia, so the time difference was a little upsetting, and he calls again. And as if years and years of harassment weren't enough, I've also heard that Bill has gotten his brothers in on this prank phone call. Definitely Joel and Brian, but who knows, it could be more of his siblings. And through the magic of Instagram, I got to confirm this fact with Kelly Lynch herself some months ago. Mitch Glazer has been no stranger to Billy's antics. 
no matter what time, two in the morning, it's Patrick Swayze's fucking your wife right now. He's pushing her up against a wall. Yeah. It was funny the first dozen times or so. In my research, I found where Kelly answered another question I had surrounding this prank. God help me when AMC is doing their Roadhouse Marathon because I know the phone is just going to keep ringing. Doesn't matter if it's two or three in the morning, she said. Hands down, one of my favorite Bill Murray stories. There's a lot to be said for a classic prank phone call. Uh, If you're friends with me, you know that I'm a big fan of pranking people. Billy's never let that tradition die, and I fully endorse his playful harassment of his friends, but I hope that Kelly and Mitch are able to easily get back to sleep. Yeah, it was uh, pretty crazy that you posted about that story (laughs) once, and then Kelly Lynch started talking about it and then had like a little back and forth. That's kind of wild to get something confirmed by an actual person that's involved involved yeah i i mean it was cool just the back and forth and i'm like i'm just gonna ask and who, she probably won't answer and then she did and i'm like yes i know for sure now kelly lynch rules yeah we love her on this podcast well thank you for that murray moment of course anytime did you have any final thoughts on ghost before we close this thing out yeah i have a little fun fact that i learned um in the writing of ghost so the aspect of Sam not being able to say I love you to Molly and he says ditto instead which is I mean it's a great little thing that's thrown into the movie you if you've seen this movie you know the ditto line but where that comes from is Bruce Joel Rubin when he was in high school he had a girlfriend that this was the situation she would say I love you and he would just say ditto and that upset her. But I, I love that there's a little history behind that. I do, because it is such a, a big part of the movie, and I love that they bring it back around. Mm-hmm. Um, I know. Yeah. To bring it back around just, like, really seals the deal on how, uh, how it stabs you straight in the heart, really. Always one of my favorite things when they do in a script. Mm-hmm. Introduce something, they bring it full circle. And you're like, yes, nice job. All right, what about you, Justin? I didn't necessarily have a final thought on the movie, but I figured I would bring this up, not to go too long on it, but uh, since we are doing Ghost, it seemed appropriate to just propose this question. Mm -hmm. Because I don't know that we've, it's weird that we've never actually talked about this openly, but I was curious if you believed in ghosts. Oh. Oh, man. Um, You know, like a lot of things. It's kind of a yes or no question, but... (laughs) Like a lot of things, I can't prove or disprove. So I'm going to say I believe in the likelihood of it. But I think that because I want to see a ghost so badly that I never will. That's my feelings on ghosts. I get that. I get that. Yeah. What about you? Um, I would say I do. I had one experience in my life that uh, still to this day is unexplained to me of what else could have possibly went, Oof. went yeah. on. Um, short story, I was working in the theater uh, real late at night. Um, I secured everything, locked all the doors up, and then a light came on in a room that had secured and locked. Um, no one else was around. I had, you know, everyone had left, and I went upstairs to this room, uh, unlocked the door, and things were, were had been moved around, like, within that moment. Now... Like when you went in, things Yeah, when I went in, things were moved around. And so then I locked the door, shut it, turned the lights off, and um, talked to some other people that worked at the theater. I talked to the janitor, and he said stuff like that would happen there all the time. Like stuff would get moved around. Maybe somebody got in there, you know, but like the way that things timed out, it just, there was no logical explanation other than 
Uh, and people have told me that this old theater was haunted. It had oh. an old uh, movie theater that had been around since like the early 40s. Um, so it had a long history. But ever since then, I can't say that I don't believe in ghosts. I haven't experienced anything like that since then. But I do, I do believe a little bit that there's some sort of presence, unexplainable presence. I don't think it's like how it is in the movie. We could go into a whole huge thing here but we won't but i was just curious you know how what how we felt maybe off the mic we'll we'll, we'll delve further into uh, <laughs> our beliefs my mom and my brother had a shared story of seeing a what seemed to be a ghost in the middle of a field and it was a woman that in in a bonnet and like not from this time period and my mom saw it and my brother said who is that lady over there? My mom was like, I have no idea. And then she like stepped behind an outhouse because this was in Northern Missouri and she was gone after that. But they saw it at the same time that, you know, that's, yeah, that's weird. That's yeah. weird. Okay. One quick question for you, Justin, would you want to have Otome's power of being able to communicate with the dead? I think I have too many voices going on in my, my, <laughs> my head as it is right now to uh, introduce i think there's another movie about otome where she like goes completely insane <laughs> you know because that would just be too much you know i mean it, yeah I, I think they do a good job of kind of showing the intensity of it you know later on when everybody's like all oh, the other ghosts are bugging her yeah. they want to like you know use her to channel what's happening um and i think that there could have been a whole other movie like a sequel yeah. of just otome that could have been a really funny and exciting oh i would completely watch that movie yeah, me too. Well, we'll stop there. We hope you've enjoyed our episode on Ghost. Uh, next episode, we're we're going for a drama. This was uh, this was a drama, but we we've, we've been kind of wanting to stay on the drama tip. Uh, we yeah. don't really get into the dramas too often here, and we've done a few, and they are. I, I love a drama. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, it's a genre yeah. that I think honestly, if you sat me down and said, "What's your favorite genre?" I think for the most part, I love a lot of the cult movies and I love watching weird movies. I love horror movies, but there's something about sitting down with the drama, especially this time of year. So we're going to keep that uh, train running with girl interrupted next with one of our favorites on the podcast here. And that's Winona Ryder. And also keeping it going with Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah. And if you want to watch Girl Interrupted before the next episode airs, it's currently streaming on Netflix. Again, happy new year. I know it's uh, a court. I was, been watching Curb Your Enthusiasm and according to Larry David uh, after three days you can't stay Happy New Year anymore it's just annoying he's like that's the cutoff three days you know January 4th you don't say Happy New Year but I'm gonna do it anyway um, we've got a lot more stuff coming up soon and if you haven't already please do follow us on social media we're on Facebook we're on Twitter we're on Instagram Instagram is where we're the most active I believe we also have a YouTube channel um, that has all of our old episodes on it Please subscribe to that. Um, you can also find all of our old episodes archived on our website at don'tpushpausepodcast.com. There we also have an online store with a lot of things to buy, a lot of stuff that has our logo on it. Please purchase something if you like. All that money helps to go into funding a bigger and better podcast for your ears. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reber. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks, guys. Oh
Wait for me. Wait for me. 